你正在收听《Jimmy the Corner by Kobe the Water Pal》博客。好的。I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Freaknik is an annual hacker convention that takes place in Nashville, Tennessee, and started back in 1997. There's always featured speakers giving talks on everything from technology, coding, security, and legal developments, to name a few. But also a ton of fun. There's video games, Lego tables, D&D sessions, dance parties, and a whole bunch more going on during the three-day stretch. I had a chance to attend Freaknik 19 here in 2015 and sit with one of the founding members, Johnny X. Talk about Freaknik and the history of that. Where did that all come from, and your involvement in that? I'm one of the instigators and the guy who ran it for the first five years. And so '97 was the first year the Freaknik grew out of the local Nashville 2600 chapter. And the guy who had started Nashville 2600, kid actually, because he was a teenager, part of the BBS scene back in I think 1992 or '93. And he went out to some of the early DefCons in Las Vegas and said,、uh, "Hey, we should do a, a hacker convention here in Nashville." And I attended my first one in '95. That was SummerCon, which was interesting,、uh, considering some of the stuff that happened there. We said, "Well, yeah, we're lazy, and and we would rather have people come to us than have to pay money to go out to other conventions. So let's let's see if we can do this in Tennessee and not get arrested." Pretend like we don't know anything about the hacking culture. DefCon, talk about that real quick. You know, what is it, and what are some of the highlights? Maybe DefCon, biggest hacker convention in North America, takes place each year out in Las Vegas.、Uh, there's even an episode of the, the X Files, a TV series, where the characters appear at DefCon. Although the convention was presented more as a military-industrial, more of a corporate-type thing than a. A freewheeling hacker convention, and as portrayed in the X Files TV series. But I'm using hacker in the original non-criminal sense of the word. People who like playing with technology or exploring complex systems—they don't have to be computer systems. There's a guy down in Atlanta who hacks the postal system by seeing what will go through and what will not.、Um, he'll do things like he'll send a, a cardboard cube that's got a different address on each face. Including his return address, and see from postmarks and GPS unit inside where it bounces around before it finally makes its way back to him.、Okay. Stuff like that. So that's a form of hacking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, for folks who don't know, explain the whole、uh, white hat, gray hat, black hat、okay. terminology. It's kind of like the cowboy hats: good guys, bad guys.、Uh, the white hat guys tend to be academic、uh, researchers or professional infosec guys who are keeping. The networks of their corporate employers secure. The black hat guys are the crooks. Those are the ones you hear about on the news who are stealing identities and money laundering and organized crime outfits out of Russia and China and whatnot. They're the bad guys, and we don't like them. Yeah, you know, boo hiss. The gray hats,、um, pretty much what they sound like. They tend to use their powers usually for good, but they may go around bad laws or laws that they see as bad. A good example of a gray hat. Hacker would be someone who writes and distributes software to allow people to get around, say, Chinese censorship, the the great Chinese firewall, for instance. So here in the Western world, we would see these as activists and helping people avoid censorship, whereas the Chinese government would see them as criminals. 
Freaknik, it's, it's almost 20 years now. And yeah, and we're, most of us are, have still not been arrested, so I consider that a plus. Describe that first year. The first year was very small. Um, I think we only had about 20, 25 people. It was kind of a proof of concept. Can we pull this off? Um, what do we need to do organizationally, logistically to make this happen? You know, gosh, we were paranoid. Will we get arrested? Ooh, because we're using the, the H word, the hacker word. And we advertised a lot more openly for uh, Freaknik 2 and going forward. We started pulling in other user groups like the Nashville Linux user group and coordinating with people. And part of the point of the convention was there had been a series of articles in a, one of the local newspaper at the Times about those evil hackers and they should all go to jail and hacker this, hacker that. And we actually reached out to the reporter who wrote the articles and said, hey, uh, we take some issue with these articles and here's the original history of the word hacker and that's how we describe ourselves and uh, why don't you come to one of our meetings, why don't you check out our convention and the reporter went from being one of the strongest critics to one of our biggest supporters and uh, we got really good reviews year after year in the Nashville scene, uh, articles written between conventions, we were voted the best technology convention in uh, Nashville several years in a row and I left Tennessee in 2001, moved down to Atlanta, Georgia, turned the convention over to another group of locals. But by the time I left we had started getting press interest and in stories from CNN, from Linux World, Linux Journal, and still find some of those write-ups online. So we were doing pretty good and I was very proud of the fact that while I was running the convention, we grew two to three times uh, our previous size between you know, each year. The only time we ever lost or shrank in size was Freaknik 5, and that was because we were six weeks after 9-11, and the USA Patriot Act passed three days before the convention that year. We had half of our speakers drop out as soon as the law passed, and a lot of our attendees, too, most of them said, keep the money, don't worry about refunding, you really should think about canceling the convention this year, the way the law was written, technically you're a terrorist organization, this is what we were getting from the EFF. And some prosecutor who wants to make a name for himself and go after a soft target, you're definitely a soft target, so if you could go to jail. And the economy was in a state of collapse at the time, I had just moved to Atlanta, as I said, for a job that turned out not to exist, kind of got in a bad situation down there. and. I used the last of my assets to move to Atlanta and suddenly there was no income and everybody was losing uh, the job, at least in the IT industry. I don't know anyone who didn't lose their job during that time frame. It was very tempting to shut down the convention that year. But uh, the things that kept me going were one, said we're not doing anything wrong. The whole reason we started the convention was public outreach to bring people in, hey, you know, hacker should be synonymous with computer tech and good guy, and uh, we work with all these other groups. If we were bad guys, we wouldn't be advertising a convention that was free and open to the public. We wouldn't have law enforcement people helping us and giving talks at the convention. Sounds kind of trite now, but these were scary times right after 9-11. He said, if we change our behavior because we're afraid of what might happen, then the bad guys want the terrorists have won. They've made us change our behavior and censor ourselves out of fear of what could happen. And worst case scenario, you know what, if they come after me as the terrorist ringleader, um, the case will get a lot of buzz. I probably won't 
fingers crossed, won't be in jail that long. I won't have to worry about paying rent for a while. Yeah, so the, there we go. The food's okay, I hear. Uh, I don't know. Growth continued after that uh, slight downward spike and convention did well for years afterwards. While your bits are flipping, check your page table, but it's not able to find free frames going to the wrong label. All the while, I'll corrupt your file with this vicious float and impeccable style. You can't of these 19 years, what are some of the highlights for you? <laughs> I mean, try to think. I think the statute of limitations has passed on all the, the truly fun stories. I remember from Freaknik 4, that was our first year in a really large hotel. And the place doesn't exist anymore. They have funny aside here. Every hotel that we held the convention in when I ran it during the first five years wound up being demolished shortly after the convention stopped being held there. Not because we trashed the hotel. We always uh, stressed work with the hotel staff, don't do any damage, we want to keep coming back. But because we grew so rapidly those first few years, we went through several hotels. And we were in one out by the National Metro Airport, Freaknik 4 and 5. We had Emmanuel Goldstein from 2600 Magazine and 2600.com. His group came down from New York City. That's the parent organization. They brought an almost final cut of their film, Freedom Downtime, which is a hacker documentary. And we had the first national screening of this before anyone really in this part of the country had gotten to see it. And I'm proud of that. People behaved themselves. So even though we had a lot of folks with uh, lasers and high-powered laser gear there, no incidents with the airport. Although we did get the attention of the airport police on a couple of times. I think the third time they came over, they just wanted to hang out. The second time they came over, the way the hotel was designed, the guest rooms were in five separate buildings. Four of them were built around a swimming pool. The check-in room in the convention space was a separate building. The hotel had this downslope so you could walk outside the building the convention rooms were in, and you had a three-story blank brick wall. And so the big, powerful video projector wound up out there, and people were projecting video games onto the side of the wall and playing, and that was a lot of fun. I went back inside. I didn't realize that shortly after I left, the porn had come out and so they were projecting pornography three stories high on the side of this building figuring hey it's facing away from the highway there's no problem there <laughs> the one of the approach departure main runways for nashville metro airport was less than a thousand feet behind the hotel so i can just imagine this plane landing <laughs> and the cabin going oh, welcome to nashville uh, local time is blah 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 mm -hmm. temperatures yada 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 if you look out to your right, you can see the National City skyline on your, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and how babies are made. <laughs> yeah, the airport police came by the, the second time and asked us if we could please uh, not display the pornography on the wall. <laughs> Third time they came by with a noise complaint, but I'm reasonably sure that was a joke and they wound up hanging out for several hours afterwards. So I can't remember which year it was, maybe Freaknik 13 or 14 when we had the Chad Ramey, who's a guest speaker again this year, but he was about 16 years old at the time, and he had built a nuclear reactor out of stuff that he bought off eBay, and so he brought the reactor to the convention and fired it up. What? Fusion reactor, not fission. He had basically built a fuser, which was an early, early, fairly easy to build nuclear reactor that runs off to deuterium. It's fusing the atoms, light elements to heavy. It's not splitting something nasty and dirty like uranium and plutonium. And this uh, reactor was developed back in the 30s by a fellow, I believe, Farnsworth, the same guy who basically developed the 
if I remember correctly, the electron tube that was the basis for modern television until flat screens took over. At the time, this is where the thinking power too cheap to meter or everything is going to be nuclear in the 40s and 50s came from. And the reason it didn't happen is based on the technology and the material science at the time. Those reactors do not scale up and they're not energy efficient. With modern materials, people are starting to re-examine these types of reactors because now we have uh, much stronger magnets. We have cheap lead-based lasers because the material science is advanced and we can computer control stuff to a degree that we just weren't able to do back in the 30s and 40s. People began to experiment with this again and think, hey, maybe we can reach the break-even point on this type of technology now. So it's always fun to say, oh yeah, we got a nuclear reactor built by a 16-year-old out of crap he bought off eBay. We gotta turn it on! By Freaknik 94 and ATL. And any Freaknik, you're gonna have to get your license because you're gonna have to be a professional girl watching because the babe be definitely on and Freaknik 94. When I first heard of y'all, in spite of me being a nerdy white guy, I, I instantly thought of Freaknik down in Atlanta. Yes. Spelled with an F. With an F, yes. Because I always remember, I had a couple of friends who would always wear the shirts, and they, of mm -hmm. course, had the big booty women prominently displayed. I thought, what is going on? And then I realized, ah, freak, as in like phone freaking. Phone freaking, and then NIC, and Nick's network interface cards were the hot technology in the late 90s, if you can believe it. I think we talked earlier that there was some confusion. Yeah. I wasn't the yeah. only one that thought that. So yeah. talk about that for a second. Yeah, it was a kind of pun on the name. The, the same kid who started Nashville 2600 in the early 90s went to Georgia Tech. And he started the Atlanta 2600 group down there as well. And there were some Atlanta conventions. AtlantaCon was one that ran for a couple of years before it fizzled out. So when we were trying to figure out a name for our Nashville-based convention, Freaknik was suggested as a joke. And yes, the nerdy, uh, pale computer guys and gals up here were unaware of Freaknik with an F in Atlanta. So I went ahead and went with the name. And the Freaknik with an F people were actually early adopters of the internet, apparently, because when we realized after the first year that we could pull this off, we thought, well, we don't want to get sued for copyright stuff, so we had actually sent an email to, I think it was info at freaknickwithanf.com back in 98, and just basically explaining the situation and sent a couple of t-shirts down as well. And the response we got back, as I recall, was, that's cool, no problem, maybe we'll come check it out, and we got a couple t-shirts in return. And oh, that's cool. I used to have my, I had my Freaknik with an F t-shirt until 2010 floods that washed away half of Nashville. I want to get your side on a story that has been told on another episode of In the Corner, Back with the Woodpile. Alonka Dunan, she had attended one of the other Freaknicks some years ago and had solved one of the puzzles that I think was on the maybe the flyer or maybe on the poster. Yeah. yeah. And I think that you had written it, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think she said when she finally de deciphered it, it had something about oh, swimming yeah. with okay. bow-legged women. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll give you the history on that. Okay. Um, well, I put together the Freaknik 2 programming booklet. I had a page left over I didn't know what to do with. So I did a very simple substitution cipher. Didn't do much explanation with it and just left in that because I wanted to fill the blank page in the booklet. People played around with it, no one could figure it out for the longest time, and then the girlfriend of one of the, the guys pieced it together. And I thought that was funny that the non-hacker girlfriend figured it out when none of the other hackers could. 
So I did a more elaborate one the following year. It was longer, it had a bunch of different steps, and that was the Freaknik 3 code. Again, none of the attendees could figure it out during the convention, and Alanka came across it, I think through a gaming convention, I'm not sure what, and uh, she managed to figure it out and learned a lot about basic cipher, uh, pre-World War II ciphers and codes in the process, and some of the modern computing stuff. I had uh, uh, UU encoded a zip file and does some simple rot 13, so she, she's written a really good primer that's up on her website that's a walkthrough on how to do this, and it's a very good instructional walkthrough. But yeah, the thing was something about the, the old TV series MASH. There was one of the characters on there, the older guy who was the base commander. I just remembered in one episode he was singing this kind of suggestive limerick, which I'm surprised that they actually let through on uh, network television at the time, and he was singing something about, I like to go swimming with bow-legged women and swim between their legs. And for some reason that phrase just stuck in my mind, uh -huh. and I worked that into the code. I don't remember exactly how, but it's in the Alanka's walkthrough, so yeah. Don't blame me, blame network television. I was curious as to what were some of Johnny X's earliest forays into the computing and networking worlds. I think it's interesting, my, my first exposure to home computers uh, sort of set the tone for my later career. The first computer that I actually had access to at home, my dad had bought, and it was a Franklin Ace 1000. The Franklin series, they turned out to be basically illegal Apple II bootlegs and what had happened was they assumed that Apple was going to license their ROM technology like IBM was, and so you'd have IBM clones, you'd also have Apple clones, and Franklin wanted to get in on that first, and they put out the Franklin Ace 1000, which hardware-wise was actually a better machine than the Apple II. It not only offered slightly better performance, but the floppy disk drives would not only read and write Apple format, they would do IBM PC format as well. When I was in high school, a lot of my kid pals had the Commodore 64s, or they had the IBMs. If I can remember correctly, you could also read some Commodore 64 stuff. I was kind of like the courier guy who could take discs from one platform, copy them overnight to another, rather than try to do this stuff via 110 or 300 baud modems. That was 84. I saw War Games, the movie that summer, that mowed about 1,000 miles of lawn to get a 300 baud modem. <laughs> And uh, this box just interprets signals from the computer and turns them into sound. Shall we play a game? And called around to some local BBSs and found out about this thing. Uh, there was these modems you could call into over at Vanderbilt, and through those modems you could talk to other computers all over the world. Now, what years was this? '84. It wasn't even the internet then. Our our segment was called BitNet because it's their net. But that's when I got my first proto internet access. Um, through Vanderbilt, 85. The other kids locally were doing the BBS scene and I was trying to figure out without documentation how Telnet and FTP and all that worked. And then, oh, you mean I have to use this thing called Z-Modem to download it from my Vanderbilt account, which I shouldn't have had to uh, my home floppy disks. And then I went off to college at University of Florida in Gainesville and continued to have, I guess, ARPANET proto-internet access there. Johnny X's birth name is neither X or Johnny. So where did the handle come from? 
It was inspired by the character Johnny Mnemonic from the William Gibson short story. And so I went by Johnny Anonymous for many years. When I started doing DJ stuff as a radio DJ, I shortened it to Johnny X. And I became Pope Johnny X one night in the radio station because I'm ordained in 27 different mail order ministries. And I don't remember exactly how it started, but I got ordained as a Pope on the air one night. What was the reason of getting ordained? When I was 18, my freshman year in college, um, some of my dorm mates thought it would be funny to buy an ordination for me. And they, there was an ad in the back of Rolling Stone, so they sent off in advance for this and presented me with a certificate. And I thought that was very funny and found, oh, I legally can perform weddings, uh, uh, marry people. So I started looking around in the backs of other magazines and decided, well, let's just collect them all, see how many I can find. And I stopped at 27 about 10 years ago, 15 okay. years ago. Have you actually officiated a wedding yet? Five so far. Three of them are still married. Um, uh, two divorces, three still married, although one of the three married couples, um, the husband had a sex change and is now, um, they were, I think, one of three legally married female couples in the state of Tennessee before the Supreme Court case. Okay. So Legally because they changed their sex? When they were married, yes, it was husband and wife, and then, yeah. The law apparently in Tennessee was not sure what to do right. in that situation. I mean, who, who could yeah. have anticipated that, right? Yeah. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SpunCounterGuy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Woodpile, go to SpunCounterGuy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And a special thanks to TheBroFisticate.com.